This is a podcast by The Straits Times. Hello and welcome to Bookmark This, a Straits Times podcast in which we talk about books in the headlines and recommend you new reads. I'm Olivia Ho and I'm here today with my co-host To Wen Lee. Hello. In this episode, we are going to be talking about three new non-fiction books on the climate crisis and look at how effective they are at communicating about environmental action. They are On Fire by Naomi Klein, We Are the Weather by Jonathan Safran Foa, and Fashionopolis by Dana Thomas. So, Wenli, which of these was a standout for you? Well, I think Naomi Klein's book on fire was just very impressive. It was okay. urgent, it was persuasive. Essentially, her book is a collection of essays written over the past few years. The title um, refers to Greta Thunberg's speech at Davos, where she began with the phrase, Our House is on Fire. Yes, and Greta recently nominated Times Person of the Year for her climate change activism. Yes, I mean, for those who don't know, um, she's a Swedish teenager. Who, 16 years old, is it? Is she 16 now? Yeah, 16, 15, yeah, Swedish teenager who has started this series of strikes for the climate, school strikes for the climate, and it became this global movement. So Greta Thunberg was very much, I mean, she was in awe of Naomi Klein, and Klein also references Greta Thunberg in the book itself. Klein is known for her work on books like No Logo, which came out in 1919. She's very anti-capitalist. In No Logo, she looked at sweatshop labor, multinational outsourcing. She's looked at globalization. And I think in these essays, she draws these very strong links between climate change and capitalism mm-hmm. and consumerism as yeah. well. Yeah. So the good thing about Klein's book is that she makes a big case for the need for systemic change, structural systemic change. And capitalism is one thing that obviously needs to evolve or if not... Yeah, yeah so what is it was something she said, uh, she quoted someone where she said, yes. trash the system or crash the planet. <laughs> yeah, why don't we read from Klein's book? So early on in the book, um, she says, Climate change demands that we consume less, but being consumers is all we know. Climate change is not a problem that can be solved simply by changing what we buy. A hybrid instead of an SUV, some carbon offsets what we get on the plane. At its core, it is a crisis born of overconsumption by the comparatively wealthy, which means the world's most manic consumers are going to have to consume less so that others can have enough to live. I suppose the frustrating thing is that it's very hard to convince these most manic consumers to consume less. I don't right. think many of them will even read this book. To be honest. Oh, which is which is tragic. So Klein is a proponent of the Green New Deal, which is the U.S. legislation by Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez and the Senator Edward J. Markey of Massachusetts. And it proposes a range of policies that involve weaning the U.S. off fossil fuels and building up its green energy industries. But Klein also frames arguments through the lens of climate inequality. Mm. So there's a lot of intersectionality in the way that she looks at climate change, which I appreciate. So she looks at how it's often more vulnerable communities that are affected, like indigenous peoples in Brazil, for instance, Amazon, and countries that are poorer and therefore at risk of being flooded because of rising sea levels. So these are the people who will be hardest hit mm. by climate change, who will become climate refugees. And also any form of climate action that needs to happen, she says, has to work in tandem with help going to these groups. Yeah, so it's not about working in silos, right? It's about creating bridges with, you know, the social justice movement and other movements, ongoing social movements, and working together to effect change. I mean, there was one shocking statistic that leapt out at me was that almost half of global emissions are produced by the richest 10% of the world's population. So as you say, mm. it, it ties back into this idea of climate inequality. Vulnerable groups are going to be suffering a lot more than, than those who are driving that crisis. Yeah, so it's both a very depressing book. But <laughs> so it wasn't depressing. It, it but was quite, I feel yeah. that she does there was one chapter in which she is encouraging 
she said, frankly, the hard truth is that what can you as an individual do to stop climate change? And the answer is nothing. Because in fact, if you're just an individual, like even if many, many, many individuals, the fact that you can play a significant part in stabilizing climate change is nuts, objectively yeah. <laughs> nuts. So it has to be a massive organized global movement that will stop climate change. Yeah, and I thought what she said was interesting, this idea of, you know, especially Western countries being very individual-based, right? It's about the individual, it's about me supporting eco-friendly brands because that says something about myself, whereas, and she drew a comparison with people from other communities who might be more focused on this idea of working as a community to create some kind of movement to affect change. Yeah, I think one of the things that a book can do is to change belief en masse if it is read en masse. She has this poll that she says was conducted by Harris. In 2007, it found that 71% of Americans believe that the continued burning of fossil fuels would cause the climate to change. And then two years later, in 2009, that figure drops to 51%. Oh, no. And then in 2011, it drops to 44%. So in the space of four years, they went from the majority of Americans believing that fossil fuels cause climate change dropping to less than half of Americans believing What's happening? That. Yeah, so in the four years, what happened? I don't know, was it policy? Was it elections? Uh, who, you know, who's in charge? But it does show that massive swing of belief that can happen so quickly could also work in the opposite direction. Exactly. And one thing that struck me as well was the need to invent new myths and new stories. Klein talks about how this idea of the new world, right, has been often described in terms of inexhaustibility. The idea that the riches of nature, nature being seen as this huge treasure trove, which will never exhaust mm. itself. So I think a lot of what we need to do also involves the way we talk about the climate crisis. The Guardian, for example, has changed the way it refers to it. It doesn't call it climate change, it calls it climate crisis, calling it out for what it is. But one thing that had me wondering as I was reading this book was, why are people so reluctant to change their lifestyles? The psychology behind why we continue to do the things we do, even though we know we're in the throes of this climate crisis. I mean, today I bought a plastic bottle filled with water. And I mean, I, oh, I know, no. I know, I mean, I know it's a terrible thing to do, but I still do it. And I think that's because I'm so detached from what's happening elsewhere in the world. I mean, we, we live in these urbanized communities and we're just so detached by where a lot of this degradation, where a lot of these problems are actually playing out, you know, in real life. So there's one bit, and she does acknowledge this in her book, and she very rightly touches on this idea of us being, many of us, we're global citizens, we're rootless. We don't think twice before um, flying off to another country to live for a new job, um, whether it's emigrating for love and so on. And what happens to our relationship with our environment when that happens? If we don't have any place we call home, does it have some bearing on how invested we are in the environments we, we live in? And she does refer to um, American poet Wendell Berry, um, who told her that, you know, you should just stop somewhere and begin the thousand-year-long process of knowing that place. So I, I found that quite comforting. I don't know how you felt about it when you read that bit of the book, Olivia. I think it's going to be hard to convince people to choose those paths in this day and age. And speaking of this concept of detachment, shall we move on to We Are the Weather by Jonathan Safran Foa. Ah, so yes. you're a fan of Safran Foa. I'm a fan of some of his work. So he's a yeah. novelist, you see. So uh, he is most acclaimed for Everything is Illuminated. Mm. Yes. He has now come up with this new nonfiction book called We Are the Weather, where he talks about the climate crisis and the importance of not eating so much meat. Saving the breakfast begins at home is the rest of that long title. Um, so I think one, one connection, I mean, one thing that I found very interesting about his book was how he describes the climate crisis as a crisis of belief. So it kind of ties back to what we said just now about 
not being able to fully comprehend the enormity of the situation, being so detached. And、um, there's one point in the book where he says that the planetary crisis, abstract and eclectic as it is, slow as it is, and lacking in iconic figures and moments, seems impossible to describe in a way that is both truthful and enthralling. So for him, essentially, the problem with climate change is that it's not a very good story. And also another bit that I found somewhat convincing was his remark that humanity has evolved over hundreds of millions of years in settings that are so different from the modern world. And I quote:、um, "We are often led to cravings, fear, and indifferences that neither correspond nor respond to modern realities. We are disproportionately drawn to immediate and local needs, while remaining indifferent to what is lethal but over there." Do you find his arguments convincing? Some are, some aren't.、Uh, he doesn't really have. I mean, his general overarching argument is the notion that we should each of us change our lifestyles, and that individual action is so important. So, in a way, he kind of—I wouldn't say the opposite—but it's in contrast to what Klein is saying in her book.、Mm-hmm. She's talking about the need for, you know,、huge. banding together for huge global movements, whereas systemic for systemic change, exactly, and significantly, Foyer does not really talk about systemic or structural change in this book. So it feels like the elephant in the room. And I think he does it for a reason. He wants people to feel that there is hope and that they too have the power to change things, even though、um, corporations are not moving in the same direction. I, I don't really know how I feel about that because I feel he's kind of avoiding the main issue here. Possibly he doesn't feel equipped to debate that main issue compared to someone like Klein, who's been in it on for, the front lines, on the front lines of it for more than a decade. But you are a meat eater. I am a meat eater. Do you feel like you would stop eating meat because of this book? Unfortunately, no. And it's interesting why. Thinking about why we consciously acknowledge that certain things are bad for the environment, but we still continue to do it, which is kind of why I think his comment about crisis of belief—I think that's part of why it struck a chord with me. This idea of acknowledging something but not quite believing in it. I mean, to his credit, I mean he does try to play little mind tricks on the reader to get them closer to believing, to comprehending the crisis.、Mm-hmm. So he turns to very everyday examples like a bathtub that's clogged and filling with water, or a traffic jam. This idea of Things escalating out of control, and he also tries to make things very digestible. So、mm-hmm. he has these chapters filled with bullet points, filled、mm-hmm. with alarming statistics about the damage we're doing to the environment. So、mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, I think some people might get something out of it, but for me, I see this as just one drop in that increasing ocean of literature about climate science and all, all the other efforts that people are involved in. And tying in with this idea of consumption, we have another book that we're talking about, Fashionopolis, which seems right up your alley, Olivia. Yes, because I have a great passion for fashion, of <laughs>、uh, in particular fashion history. So this book is by Dana Thomas, and she's a journalist who has spent a long time working in style. She's so fascinated with fashion, and it shows in her writing. So this is just very enthralling for me to read. But at the same time, it looks at the enormous environmental problem that is the fashion industry, which is one of the world's most pollutive and resource demanding.、Uh, so here are some of the stats that she throws down quite early on in the book. The fashion sector is responsible for nearly 20% of all industrial water pollution annually and 10% of the carbon emissions in the air. Of the more than 100 billion items of clothing produced each year, 20% goes unsold. Worldwide, we jettison 2.1 billion tons of fashion, and we think it's going to needy people. But really, even needy people do not need your clothes, and they are mostly ended up in landfill, where most of it is not immediately biodegradable, and it will just continue to take up space. And I know it's a lot of stats to toss at somebody, but it is a huge problem, and I get very frustrated <laughs> when I think about it. Like jeans, for instance.、Mm. Jeans just drive me mad. Ah, <laughs>、uh, distressed jeans. 
Ridic. What are the stress genes? So they're, you know, when you want to have holes in your genes, oh. but they're new and the process that it takes to achieve those holes. They are, so genes, first of all, made from cotton, very thirsty crop. It just sucks water. And in order to achieve this faded look when they're actually new, they have to be washed in this incredibly wasteful process. And then factory workers sand them by hand. And right. this also leads to a lot of toxic denim dust, which the factory workers then inhale if they're not working under proper conditions. And this is all just so you can wear fake old jeans, which yeah. are actually new, <laughs> when you could actually achieve the same effect by buying jeans, normal jeans, and then doing a lot of manual labor in them. So the stress jeans seem a lot more ridiculous than I used to think they were. Yes. <laughs> and a lot of it would just be tossed out, you know after a few wears. Yeah, I mean, one statistic I found absolutely shocking was the fact that the average piece of clothing is worn only seven times before it's thrown out. Because this is the function of fashion, right? You, yeah. The turnover of fashion is what Fast makes it fashion. alluring to a person. So you're drawn to something because you want it. And then after you've sort of exerted yourself with it after a while, you just grow bored of it. And that's how fashion works. Yeah, as a complete minimalist, I'm just, I'm just yeah. incapable of understanding why people would do that. But I, I don't know about you, but I feel that People don't quite make clothes the way they used to. No, and that is another thing that has led to this whole problem of fast fashion is because it's so easy to make clothes so quickly and you just sort of are very detached from the making of the clothes. In the past, you would know the person who made mm. your clothes. You know, they would be your mother or your grandmother or the tailor in your village. And you would have that personal relationship. But now all these clothes are made overseas in factories that you'll never set foot in. And you have no idea how the, what conditions people are working under. The ethical cost of fast fashion is staggering. Dire manufacturing conditions, they are some of the worst industrial disasters in history have been because of fast fashion. So from the 1911 Triangle Shirtways factory fire in New York City, the 2013 Rana Plaza collapse in Bangladesh, which mm. had a death toll of 1,134 people. So it is the deadliest garment factory accident in modern history. And I think even now people just would prefer not to think of how their clothes are being made. So it's not all doom and gloom, is it? There are some alternatives. Yeah, so the first few chapters of this book are devoted to some pretty depressing statistics. But Thomas is also looking to the future of fashion. So she's got all these alternatives that she looks into. It's been very fashionable recently for the fashion industry to so-called greenwash. You know, so they all recently, all the runways, they were all putting out these eco-conscious collections with a lot of green, a lot of forest-looking stuff. But she's actually, Thomas is actually looking at alternatives that really dig into the way fashion is manufactured and how you can change that. So one of the things is slow fashion. So returning to that model of controlled artisanal producing, mm -hmm. and you produce small scale, you grow locally. So you know all how every step of the process is done. And that way you can control and minimize waste. Are these more expensive though? Yes, they are more expensive. And that's something I'll get into later. All these alternatives are because of the effort it takes to produce them more expensive than fast fashion. Technology, for instance, if you're going to invest resources in growing leather in a laboratory or you're going to make crepe out of orange juice byproduct or mushrooms, that's going to take a lot of investment and that's going to factor into the price of the price of fashion so that one day in the future you can grow a dress out of a vat of liquid. Mm. So what can those mere mortals do? Well, most of us are not going to be able to afford an Iris Van Herpen 3D printed dress or Stella McCartney. You know, Stella McCartney had this beautiful dress that was a goldenrod silk, and it was made out of silk that was spun like spiders. So they took spider DNA and they coded it wow. and made it in a way that they could spin it artificially in a lab. 
So it's got the same tensile strength as spider silk. Right. But right. there are no spiders, actual spiders involved. No, no spiders were no, harmed in the process. Well, I mean, maybe some at the beginning, but... Okay, <laughs> but we'll forget about them. <laughs> yeah, but most people cannot afford Stella McCartney. And uh, I think Thomas does ask McCartney about this. And she says, well, frankly, it's going to work the way that haute couture works, which is mm. that the invention occurs at the top of the pyramid and it trickles down. So what we can, normal mortals like us, we can go for secondhand clothing, we can upcycle, we can go for subscription rentals. And uh, that's something that's actually taking off in Singapore right now. We have Style Theory, which is, I think we flagged as one of the things to look out for in 2020. Yeah, so this just requires us to rethink the way we consume fashion and Mm. to not react on impulse, not to buy on impulse. And that goes against everything that we're coded to do as consumers, that we're conditioned to do by capitalism. And it requires a lot of restraint. Yeah, so we could learn to make our own dresses. We could, but I have been trying to do that and it takes forever. So, uh, well... Which, which kind of brings us back to the question, how useful do you think these books are? Realistically, how much good do you think books like On Fire, We Are the Weather, Fashion Apollos, what, what do you think these books can achieve? I Realistically, they're not going to show you immediately the steps that you can take to change the world. Their wider purpose, I feel, is to perpetuate this society-wide mindset shift. So contributing to the discussion. Yes, and also to give you hope. I know it sounds really trite, but hope is very important now because if you're consuming the media that we are today, especially in Hollywood, everything is about the apocalypse, every climate, there's all these climate crises. <laughs> Which is part of the problem. It is part of the problem because yeah. you just watch all these things, you're like, inevitably the world will end. Uh, and you feel so helpless and you think, well, we need some kind of hero or some kind of saviour to save us all from ourselves. Yes, and especially those movies, right, that have the villain. The villain is climate change. The villain is the eco warrior environmental yeah. activism so um, I'm just thinking off the top of my head Raz al Ghul in Batman so oh, no. his plan is to or Thanos for instance in Marvel <laughs> Thanos is an environmental activist he would he would reduce half of us he would get rid of half of us and then you know the systems of the world will recover ethical implications aside yeah so that is part of the problem I think that you frame rebooting the system as the villain so I think books like this have played this role in giving us hope, giving us ways to look at the problem without just crashing and burning. And Klein quotes Ursula K. Le Guin, the legendary science fiction writer, in her speech when she received the National Book Foundation Medal in 2014. Uh, So she said in this speech, hard times are coming when we'll be wanting the voices of writers who can see alternatives to how we live now, can see through our fear-stricken society and its obsessive technologies to other ways of being, and even imagine real grounds for hope. We will need writers who can remember freedom, poets, visionaries, realists of a larger reality. We live in capitalism. Its power seems inescapable. But then, so did the divine rights of kings. Any human power can be resisted and changed by human beings. And resistance and change often begin in art. Oh, that's a great quote. I think it's testament to the power of words. I mean, power writers have in changing people's minds by persuading them, be it emotionally or through, through the power of their writing. Yeah, and it's, it's a start. And that's all we have time for today. Once again, to recap, we have been talking about On Fire by Naomi Klein, We Are the Weather by Jonathan Safran Foer, and Fashionopolis by Dana Thomas. I'm Olivia Ho. And I'm Toa Lee. And we thank you for listening to us, and we'll catch you in 2020. That was an SBH podcast by The Straits Times. 
find us on Spotify, Apple or Google Podcasts or streaming on Google Home. Do feedback to us at podcast.sbh.com.sg. You can also check out more podcasts on various topics at The Straits Times and The Business Times online.